turn in our Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter 3, as we continue our consideration of the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Looking at verses 7 through 13 of Revelation 3 this evening, we remember who is speaking. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the first and the last, the living one, the one who died and who is alive forevermore, the one who has the keys of death and Hades, as we read about it. There in chapter 1, the one who walks among the seven lampstands, the one who walks among the churches, and that picture of the lampstand, of that of bringing light, is fitting for us tonight, because we're going to be talking about witness, giving witness to our faith. And as we do that, we remember by these very pictures that we are called to be bearing the light. And showing that light to those around us and trusting that God, who is faithful to his promises, will use that word to bring light and life to those who hear. Direct your attention to the seventh verse of Revelation 3. We read God's own word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So far, the reading of God's own holy word. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. People of God, I want to begin tonight by looking at the background of the city to whom this, uh, where this church is located. This letter is written to the church in Philadelphia, and I think it will help us to understand some of the imagery, some of the reason for why Jesus speaks the way he does, and help us to learn what the word says to us as well this evening. The city's past was uh, uh, something of a, of a tragedy. It was a city that had experienced a great earthquake in the year 17 and, and lived for many years thereafter with a lot of aftershocks. And so the city was uh, uh, found it nearly impossible to recover. Every time it would build a, a Try to reestablish a building, the building would, an aftershock would occur and the building would crumble. People wouldn't live in their houses. They were living out in the countryside because they were afraid that their own homes would crumble, that an aftershock could come at any moment unannounced as these things are. 
they're afraid to go into the temples. And there is not much in Philadelphia that is all that stable at this time. Citizens saw their need for help. That's one thing that we can recognize. They knew that they had a need to be helped. So they asked for it, and they asked for it from the Roman Empire. They were uh, under Roman rule or under the Roman influence at this time, and they went to Rome. And there was economic relief given to them in the form of subsidies, in the form of relief from taxes. So out of honor to Rome and to Uh, The emperor, they named the city a new name. They named it Neo-Caesarea, Caesar's new city. Something of of an act of praise or an act of worship, we might even say, as they looked to the one they believed would give them new life. The city had admitted its weakness, looking for help, and so to the church, Jesus ties in his message to the, to the church along with the city. He says, you too are weak. You too have little power. But do not doubt that I am able to deliver, that I am able to secure, secure your life. He says it this way, I know you have little power, but I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Verse 8, well, we're going to look at that in a moment, but what we want to note here at the outset is that weakness has something to teach us. And this church understood its weakness, and they then were to give attention to the one who was speaking to them of their strength being found in him. If we know ourselves to be weak, we must look somewhere to find strength, and we need to look outside of ourselves. I said the city of Philadelphia looked to the Roman Empire to give it new birth. This helped to serve the city's economic life, but that is, of course, passing. These things don't last. uh, Economies rise and fall, and material things don't endure. Christian knows that true Life and strength and stability is found in God. And that's what Jesus reminds the church of here. He acknowledges their weakness. You have little power. But he assures them that he has set an open door before them. What does that, what does that mean? What do we make of that open door? There's a number of different Interpretations, commentary given to those uh, to, to that particular phrase. I've put an open door before you. I want to look at that you tonight. I want to look together uh, at these at a few different ways of understanding that passage. God has written this word, and I think He's written it in this way that we would understand our weakness from a number of different angles. First, Christ says, "I've set an open door before you." Well, first thing I want us to notice is what Jesus is saying in the context of this letter is, the only way you're going to enter the kingdom is through me. You're not capable, you're not able to come on your own strength. The Jews were attacking the church. This church had a similar challenge to it as a Smyrna church, the second letter that we read. There were Jews among them, also referred to there as a synagogue of Satan. We saw that already. And they were 
claiming that they would determine who comes into the kingdom, who's permitted to come in, and who may not come in. Jesus says, I am the open door. I am the one who sets the door open before you. This synagogue of Satan, this group of Jews who was creating problems for the church, had no right to declare who entered the kingdom. They were not the gatekeepers. They were not the door. We know how they interpreted the Old Testament. The Jews interpreted the Old Testament in this way, that if one is to enter, they must be a Jew, either of that line or become Jewish. Anyone who's not a Jew or who does not submit themselves to Jewish laws and practices was outside the kingdom. But here Jesus declares, no, no, I hold the door open for you. Now, what is the church? The church is likely made up of a number of converts, obviously Gentile converts who would have had their uh, uh, credentials questioned, as it were, but also those who had grown up in Judaism but who had converted to Christianity and they were seen as unfit to even be considering the kingdom of God as theirs to possess, to be inheritors. These believers knew themselves to be weak. They acknowledged that. But they also recognized it did not disqualify them for entrance into the kingdom, for Christ was their open door. You remember how Jesus speaks of himself in John chapter 10. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he says this also in verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. Anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He is the one who opens the door. He identifies himself in this way in the opening verse when he says that, uh, when he opens the the letter this way, I am, these are the words of the Holy One, the True One. I am that Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This was revealed by his origin. By his origin, is we recognize from the prophet Micah that he was one from of old, from eternity. John says in John chapter 1, we've beheld his glory, the one who was with the Father, who was equal to the Father, who was God, was with God and was God. He, then, is of the line of David, a true Israelite, serving Yahweh perfectly, the one who bore his people's punishment And made a way for them to come into the kingdom. Not through works of righteousness, but through his imputed righteousness. Given to those who believe in him. Those born not of of a man's will, but rather of the will of God. As he says in the beginning of John chapter 1. Just read that verse for us to get it in our minds. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Now, before we, we move on, I want us to note that those words that he chooses, that, uh, that, that he uses here, the one who opens and no one will shut, the one who shuts and no one opens, uh, refers back to Isaiah 22, verse 22. Christ applies those words to himself. We're, we're not going to look at that passage tonight and all of the, uh, the, the players there. But there were two stewards in the house of Israel at that time, Shebna and Eliakim. Shebna was an unworthy steward. Eliakim was a true steward, and he was the one who was promised to receive the key. One who was promised to receive uh, a key that would open and shut in a true sense. And here, our Lord and Savior applies that to himself. He says, I am the one, truly, that this verse speaks of. I am the greater steward, the one who opens and shuts sovereignly. As the writer of Hebrews says, he's greater than all. He is the one who is greater than all of the leaders of the people of God. Indeed, the one to whom all of these leaders pointed in type and shadow. Spoke to the people here and pointed the people of God, uh, people to God as a savior. And in that sense, he held the door open to sinners to be saved. It was not for anyone else to decide, not for the nation of Israel or anyone else to decide. So that first off, I have this door open. I am the door, he says. That is the message that we bring. The the way in is open to all. People will say to us, well, you're so exclusive. You you, you think you're better than others. You you, uh, uh, act as though uh, you have some, some greater path. And we say, well, actually... It's a humility. It's submitting ourselves to the Word of God. Word of God says the only way is Christ. and We can't just decide who comes in and how they act and what they do. The call is to believe, to come through Christ, through Him alone. And that is a, that is a measure of humility. We come to hear that proclaimed to remind ourselves that we can be saved. We don't come because we think we're better than others, but because we know we need to hear that. Be reminded of that. So here Jesus says that to the church in Philadelphia, but by extension to the churches. Remember, these are written for the churches. We've already looked at that, what that means through time. Secondly, Christ said to them, You have little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Interesting statement. You have little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. How could this be? It's because he was keeping them. Because he was holding on to them. And there is that promise in Scripture too. When we feel weak, when we feel like we have little power, Christ promises to hold on to us. To leave that door open. By his sacrifice, through his shed blood. Through his intercession. That's the source of the sinner's perseverance. That's the source of our perseverance. It's Christ and his eternal intercession. God gives his chosen ones to his son. Listen to what Jesus says in John 6.39. John 6.39, he says that it is his will. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the matter of of perseverance is to focus people upon Christ. It's to his glory, not our own. It's to his honor, not ours. 
Gospel isn't to tell others about how good we are, rather how great our Savior is. He keeps. He holds on to us. Jesus says also in the gospel, according to John, John 10, he says, I give eternal life to them, that is to my sheep. They will not perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of his hand. John 10, 28 and 29. Christ tells his church, you have little power, yet you have kept my word because I am holding you. He indicates that trial will come upon the earth, but he promises that he will keep them, keep them, and by inference, all of his own throughout the ages by his power from that hour of trial that's coming. It's not clear what this hour of trial is really referring to. We need to remember that this is apocalyptic literature, however, and it doesn't need to be specifically an hour. It can refer to a period of time. It's symbolic, an hour of testing, an hour of, of, of trial. And so it likely has a double reference. It can refer to that trial that's coming upon them soon, but also to the trial that happens to God's people until he returns. God is going to keep, Christ is going to intercede for his people who are weak and have little power. This is a letter for the churches, a letter not just for Philadelphia, but for God's people throughout time. Now there are those who use this verse to argue for the rapture. That believers are going to be raptured out of the world before the tribulation. But we need to pay close attention to what Jesus says here. He doesn't say he's going to take them out of the world. He says he's going to keep them. He's going to keep them. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father, not that he would what? Take them out of the world, but that he would keep them from the evil one. That he would protect them that he would hold on to them and lead them through all of the attacks of the evil one. And we're told that we will have difficulties in this life, but he has overcome, and we overcome by our faith in him. We believe that the Bible teaches that we're in the days of tribulation now, upon the time of his ascent until the time of his second coming. The days are evil, the days of trouble are upon us in trial, and we're kept by Christ through the work of the Spirit. So that, secondly, by understanding weakness. What weakness do we have? We're weak to persevere. We can't do it on our own. And thirdly, Jesus holds the door open for the conversion of others. We see that in the context as well. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. I will make them come and bow down before your feet. This language is used, this language of an open door is used in other passages to speak of evangelistic opportunities. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8. He says, I need to stay in Ephesus because a great door has been opened to me for evangelism. 16, 8, and 9. Second 
uh, Corinthians 2, he says, there is a, a door that appeared to be open, but, but God would not allow me to be there. But he, but he speaks of it in the way of an evangelistic opportunity. What does this phrase, open door, mean? It often looks, or is taught in, in the word, to speak of evangelistic opportunities. And here Christ uh, speaks of that when he says some of the Jews would come and bow down before them and what? Learn that he loved them. They will come bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you, into verse 9. They will see that God saves Gentiles. In the Old Testament, Isaiah's prophetic message was this, that the Gentiles would come in and acknowledge that God had been good to them, that God was surely among them. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 45, verse 14. Surely God is with you and there is none else. God promises that they would come from the nations, from the, from the east, from the west, and they would, they would be those who, who were brought in and they would see that God was good to Israel. But here, God says he would reverse things, that the Gentiles would be walking in the faith and some, and some of these Jews would be converted. Let's see how that plays out in the rest of Scripture, at least in part. Paul, the, the proud Israelite, had to learn this when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, and then uh, in his in his what I like to call his seminary training, his three years in the Arabian desert. Galatians one verse eighteen tells us about that. He he's with the Lord. He learns what God's plan is, how he's going to suffer greatly for the gospel among the Gentiles. He he sees that, and and he recognizes that God's Messiah would come to offer salvation to the nations, and we rejoice in that because that means we're included. <laughs> that means that 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 God has has brought us in. This has a direct bearing upon our own understanding of how we can find strength in our weakness. It's in Christ. Paul shows this, just one illustration. Paul shows this in, in Romans 15. He's talking to the, to the uh, congregation there and he's saying, receive these people from various uh, people groups. Receive them as brothers in the Lord. Listen to what he says in Romans 15 verses 8 to 12. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jew, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. This is Paul speaking. He has had a radical transformation in his understanding of the gospel being only for the Jew. He says, no, no, it's, it's very clear. I'll show you that here in a few uh, moments. That's very clear that the that the gospel is going to the Gentiles. Paul encouraged the church to accept believers from all people groups. Christ says, I have come to the lost sheep of Israel. That we understand. And even Paul opens the letter to the Romans to, to, so that they might listen to him. He says, Christ came to the Jew first, Romans 1.16, but also to the Gentile. came to the Jew first to confirm God's faithfulness to his promise made to the patriarchs, as he says it here in verse 8. And that faithfulness is laid out in Romans 9 through 11. 
God's faithfulness in drawing then the remnant of Israel in should be an encouragement to the, to the Gentiles that God will be faithful to his promise to bring in the nations. They ought to rejoice in this. They ought to glory in this. God keeps his promises. As we heard this morning, not because he's indebted to any one people, but because of his mercy and faithfulness. In fact, in Romans 11, verses 30 to 32, it speaks there. I'm not going to read those verses, but it speaks there. He says, there was a hardening amongst Israel, just as amongst uh, the other peoples, that it all might be shown, it being salvation, to rest upon his grace and his mercy. Not because they were a special people in and of themselves, but in keeping with that principle, God will have mercy upon whom he has mercy. That no one may boast before him. Now, to the point I was making just a few moments ago, Paul's really trying to press this home because what he's doing here in, in, in Romans 15 is he's taking three parts of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the writings, the, the three main sections of the Old Testament. He's taking passages from each one of those places so that they might see this is the, this is the testimony of the entire Old Testament, not just a passage here and a passage there, but the entire Old Testament. He says, as it is written, and again it said, And again, and again, and he's looking at different passages through the Old Testament to show that the Old Testament is not being twisted in one particular place to say what Paul wants it to say, but that the entire testimony of the Old Testament points to God's great love and mercy, not just to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. God intends to bring in the nations, and this is made very vivid in, at Pentecost when the gospel goes out to the different languages. The church, the new Israel, would be made up of people from all nations. Now, the Jews in Philadelphia should have recognized this and seen what God was doing. But instead, they were railing against the Christians, this church, this body of believers, and Christ identifies them as the synagogue of Satan. The believers in the church, on the other hand, should, have been, should be comforted by the words that Christ brings, confirming that they are included because he has left the door open. Paul expected his mission to the Gentiles to work this way, to go back to Paul just for a moment, that Christ's mercy would extend to the Gentiles, that it would provoke envy amongst the Jews, that they too might see what God was doing among the nations and be brought near to be gathered in, grafted in by faith into the tree of God's covenant in keeping with his mercies. Well, what weakness are we looking at here? Well, the weakness of witness, right? We're very uncertain about how we should go about this. We don't like to share our faith. We don't really know what to say always. And we're thinking, well, how is this going to even happen? What do I say? And will it mean, will it matter? And Christ says, your call is to speak, not to convert. Your call is to know the word, to point people to Christ, who is the great open door for sinners. And I, by my spirit, will draw people to myself. Ah, you say, that, that, the most offensive part is the cross. I mean, we, you know, we got to get there eventually. That's, that's where we end up. We got to talk about Jesus on the cross. And, John, and Jesus says in John 12, that's exactly right. And when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It's the cross 
That is an offense to those who do not have God's Spirit, but it is that which should be set before all men that it might be seen that the Spirit is powerful to draw people to himself, to this most offensive message, but the only way that the sinner can be reconciled to God. The Son of Man, when he is lifted up, will draw all men to himself. What does he mean by all? Well, he means all those whom God has chosen, as we see through other passages. That's not our focus tonight, but just for a point of clarity. So, as a summary, we are weak. We cannot enter the kingdom on our own. We cannot stay in the kingdom on our own. We cannot uh, walk with Christ on our own. We cannot bring anyone into the kingdom on our own, but our Lord and Savior can do all these things, and he promises to do that by leaving the door open. He says, you go forth in your little power, and I will show my power. And the church will grow to expand to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. Matthew 24. Though we must look to Christ, and how does Christ describe himself in the opening of Revelation? He is the one walking among the churches. He's not up in heaven, simply uh, occupied with other things. He is walking amongst the lampstands. He's walking among the churches. And by the power of his spirit, he is bringing people in through the gospel. Even through weak vessels. In fact, our weakness magnifies his strength, as Paul says. We have this treasure in jars of clay, 2 Corinthians 4 that it might appear, make, be very apparent that it is not of us, but the power is of God. He is alive in us by his spirit that we might testify to him. So the promise then, the summary of the promise, in contrast to shaky Philadelphia, in contrast to this uncertainty, this citizenship in this, in this city that's trying to get its legs under it, Christ says, of the believer, that he or she will be firmly established in a new city, which is to come. Listen to verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Again, the historical context is is helpful Citizens of Philadelphia lived outside of the city for many years after this earthquake, feeling unsafe to enter in, feeling uncertain if there was any safety to be found there. And Christ picks up on this because some of the Christians felt unwelcome in the kingdom of God because of not just the secular people who were taunting them and their gods, as they said, but also from the religious who said, you can't come in. You aren't good enough. You don't belong. And Christ says, ah, but I have opened the door. Come. We're not promised great acceptance in the world, either from the secular or from the religious. We have those from both sides who take pot shots at us, if you will, for one reason or another. And our only clear line of sight is to see God through Christ. Understand that in him we are welcome. 
Our sights need to be set upon him who will come from heaven with a new city. The city of God comes down from heaven. So where do we find ourselves? Well, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12. Where did Christ, uh, where, did, where was Christ found? Outside of the city. Excuse me, chapter 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He suffered outside the city, appearing to be unwelcome, to be unworthy to enter. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured, declaring that he is the despised one who has become what? The cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. And it is glorious in our eyes, says the psalmist. And through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God through him. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Whose architect and builder is God? We know that this earth will not endure. Writer says in Hebrews 12, that in the end, the heavens and the earth will be shaken and what will happen? Or why was this, will this happen? It will be shaken in order to remove the temporary things so that what is eternal can be revealed. And then the end will come and we will be established with him. The city comes from God. It is eternal, not like the city of man, which is so unstable. One more aspect of this passage that we have to consider, and that is Christ's word to the church. I am coming soon, verse 11. Behold, I'm coming soon. Or in this, in this uh, instance, I am coming soon. That makes us think of a time reference. We think, well, how, when is this soon going to be? Well, in apocalyptic literature, it doesn't necessarily mean chronologically. It, does, it means more of a certainty that he is coming. There is nothing that's going to keep this from happening. He is coming soon. That's how we need to understand this. And he gives this final encouragement there at the second part of that verse, verse 11. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast to the crown of faith. That's what God gives. That's how God uh, 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 decorates us, if you will, or or sets up a crown of faith upon our heads. Says, you are my child. You have the, uh, you're wearing that which welcomes you, identifies you as a citizen in this new kingdom. You may come in. You bear a new name, child of God, as we saw in John chapter 1, verse 12. This cannot be taken from you. It's a gift of God bestowed on him. And he will never turn his back on his own. He will keep us. Time passes very quickly. But Christ will certainly come to earth. And when he does, all the world will bow the knee to him, declaring him to be Lord, to the glory of the Father. Then the old order of things will pass away. And Jesus says, as he closes this letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. Reminder that though we are weak, you are strong. That we have such little power that you are all-glorious. That though we have little power, you have 
entrusted us with the gospel. Which points us to Christ, in whom is our boast. We do not boast in ourselves, but we boast in the cross. Where our Savior and Lord gave his life that we might have all of our sins removed. That we might then, as we believe, have that new name, child of God, son of God, inheritor. Behold, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called sons of God, inheritors. And that is what we are. Lord, help us to walk humbly, to walk in a right path with you in this world and not to be afraid to call others to see Christ for who he is, that they might know life in him. Hear us, we pray, for his sake. Amen. Someone said to me not so long ago, a simple message is so important.